from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. At a 2016 rally in Ohio, newly elected President Donald Trump unveiled his pick to lead the Defense Department. We are going to appoint Mad Dog Mattis as our Secretary of Defense. Mad Dog was Trump's pet name for General James Mattis, a retired Marine Corps four-star general. Mattis later said he highly disliked that nickname. And it wasn't the only thing that he and Trump disagreed on. Less than a year after getting sworn in, Mattis resigned over Trump's decision to withdraw troops from Syria. Trump later took to Twitter and Fox News saying he'd actually fired Mattis. Mattis was a highly overrated general. And I let him go. He was a terrible general. He was a bad leader. Trump and Mattis clashed on a lot of fronts, including climate change. While the president was out calling climate change a hoax and saying wind turbines cause cancer, his general was saying stuff like this about the warming planet. It's a national security issue because when people have to leave devastated areas and move elsewhere, the refugee flows, the, uh, all the humanitarian effort that goes into it, the willingness of some people to take advantage of those people, uh, terrorists in particular, and recruit from them because they're, they feel a loss of hope. It's a reality we're going to have to deal with. That clip was from a 2019 television interview. It was when Mattis started talking publicly about his disagreements with Trump. But he wasn't just saying this about climate change after leaving office. He also explicitly called it out as a threat in testimony during his confirmation process. Trump went into office ready to smash Obama-era environmental policies. But behind the scenes at the Pentagon, a different story played out, with leaders like Mattis continuing to take climate impacts to the military seriously. So it certainly has been part of of the conversation within the Department of Defense, irrespective of the broader political environment. Aaron Sikorsky was one of the people behind the scenes analyzing security risks. As an intelligence expert for a decade, her work kept bringing her back to climate. So when I was leading those teams looking at the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa as my analysts were trying to figure out what was going to drive risks of conflict, right, or instability in these states and what kind of warning we needed to provide to U.S. policymakers about that, time and time again, environmental and and climate-related concerns were coming up. And I realized it was something that we needed to dig into more and better understand. During the Trump years, Aaron became the deputy director of the Strategic Futures Group at the National Intelligence Council. That's an organization that acts like a bridge between the U.S. intelligence community and Washington policymakers. On the ground, her analysts saw exactly what military leaders were describing from their top posts. The warming planet is posing a wide set of new security problems. And Aaron's work reflected an evolving approach to climate change inside the military and intelligence communities, treating it not as a distant threat, but as an acute risk. You know, you can predict with fairly high confidence at certain temperature levels what the physical risks will be on the planet, right, from climate change, sea level rise, extreme weather events, uh, temperatures, heat waves. But what you can't predict as much is what humans will do in response. Earlier this month, the Army released a blunt report saying exactly that. Mass migration, resource conflicts, and extreme weather are already impacting how the military does its job. And Army leaders have a -a first-of-a-kind plan to do something about it. So it sounds to me like there is real strategy that is unfolding and change happening within the military and intelligence community. 
I think so. I am optimistic. I think the challenge is they need to move as, as fast as possible because we don't have time to waste. And so we need to use all the tools in our toolbox to, to tackle them. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Over the last decade, military and intelligence leaders have pushed climate change to the top of their threat lists. And after years of risk assessments, the military is now talking about how it intends to address them. This week, what does the Army's new plan reveal about how climate will influence America's national security strategy? The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. This month, the Army issued a report on how it plans to deal with new challenges in a rapidly warming world. As director of the Center for Climate and Security, Aaron Sikorsky is paying close attention. The report is short, it doesn't make specific money requests, but Aaron says there's a lot of new detail about how to slash Army emissions, use clean distributed energy for tactical benefits, and elevate climate experts. Uh, and I was impressed with the level of detail of the ambition of some of the provisions, a microgrid on every Army installation and base, uh, a move to all electric non-tactical vehicles by, I believe, 2027, making sure to hire people at, at the headquarters level who have a strong climate science and climate security background. All of those, I think, are, are good steps forward for the Army and, and set a good standard then for the other services to follow and, again, a model for other allies and partners to follow as well. The scope of what the Army is trying to do is different, but this isn't entirely new territory. The Army's been installing solar and microgrids on bases for many years, and it's been testing solar and electrical tactical vehicles out in the field. It builds on decades of evolved thinking from top military and intelligence officials, as assessments have turned into warnings, and warnings are now turning into policy. What is the history of how this has been treated as a national security threat? In the 90s, the intelligence community stood up a program uh, called MEDEA, which was meant to link climate scientists with the CIA and with satellite imagery collection so that climate scientists could use that imagery to make historical assessments of how the climate has changed. So basically using information that the intelligence community was already collecting anyway, but using it for a different purpose. You know, this was post-Cold War. What do we have all these tools for? Well, one of the things we can use these tools for is to help scientists make better assessments about climate change and how, how that world is changing. That was then. Fast forward to now. Uh, and really, we're in a different place where the intelligence community needs to bring in those climate scientists not to share what the IC knows about the world, but what those climate scientists know about how the world is changing and, and help the intelligence community integrate that into their work. 
uh, Department of Defense. Similarly, you know, it was back in the 90s and then the early, early 2000s started using the term threat multiplier, that climate change was going to intersect with other threats and exacerbate them. So make threats uh, of political instability, of conflict, of concern over water access or food access worse than they already were. So the Quadrennial Defense Review in 2010 included the term threat multiplier. And really from there, uh, since then, DOD has continued to to deepen and expand its work on, on climate change. So this mention of climate change as a significant threat in the 2010 Quadrennial Defense Review was a very big deal. How does it start to inform the way the military talks about this issue going forward? Why was that such an important moment? Sure. It it was a big deal because it was a reframing of thinking about U.S. national security, right? This isn't just a country, right, which is our traditional unit of analysis in international relations and and foreign policy. It's not a country posing a threat to the United States. It's not even a a terrorist group or a super-empowered individual, right? It's a a, a non-state, cross-border, actorless, some people call them actorless risk, that was going to shape the environment and shape um, the landscape in which the military was operating. And so, the military's thought about it in in multiple ways over the years, really first thinking about it in terms of resilience and infrastructure. What does climate change mean for our military bases, for our ability to operate uh, in different locations around the world? What are we going to need? How are we going to have to change how we do business? I would say now it's expanded beyond that, though, kind of direct impact to a more sophisticated understanding of how climate change uh, shapes other risks and threats, whether it's competition with a country like China or Russia, or whether it is risks of political instability in the Middle East, as we saw after the Arab Spring and the, the civil war in Syria and the role that, that drought played there and driving internal migration and then driving instability within that country uh, and and how the kinds of uh, operations that the military will be called upon to do as well, both in terms of humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions abroad as the number of billion-dollar disasters uh, increases around the world, as well as here at home when the National Guard, right, in California is responding to exponentially more fire days every year um, than they did 10 or 20 years ago. And having to interrupt their training and and evacuate bases um, and and turn to protecting the homeland from these these climate risks. So, what is the army saying in this document that is new? Yeah, I think a lot of the um, ambition around mitigation or cutting emissions is is new. And obviously, given the size of the Defense Department, again, they're uh, a key actor in in catalyzing that change. And so that, um, I think, was the the newest piece in in the Army strategy. I think the other piece of the puzzle here is the adaptation and, and resilience side, because there are some 
changes baked into the system now, given the level of carbon that's in the atmosphere and, and where we are already. So, so changing the approach to thinking about where instability might arise or what kind of operations that the military has to do, especially in the humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, I think that's where I hope to see the Army and, and the rest of the, the military really, really focus as well. Coming up after the break, a little bit more about how President Biden is putting military preparedness at the center of his climate agenda as the real-world impacts in the field mount. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes. How has this military strategy changed or become more prominent or fallen into the background as administrations have changed? So I'm thinking from Obama to Trump to Biden, has the jolting political shift shaped how the military has been talking about this strategy on climate? Yes and no. <laughs> I think that on the one hand, you know, when you look at the national defense strategy that was released under uh, President Trump, there is no mention directly of climate change in that national defense strategy. And almost certainly there will be in the one we expect from from President Biden's Pentagon. At the operational level, climate security, climate change has continued to be a consideration at the department. It's something that Secretary of Defense James Mattis, under, under President Trump, when he testified before Congress, talked about concerns about climate security risks. But certainly the amount of attention, the amount of resources that are put toward it will shift given who's in the White House, for sure. So President Biden has been very vocal about the military's role in addressing climate change. And when he first came into office, he was on a trip to Europe and he gave this speech saying that the military leaders told him when he was vice president that climate change is the biggest threat that they face. You know, when I went over in the tank in the Pentagon, this is not a joke. You know what the Joint Chiefs told us the greatest threat facing America was? Global warming because there'll be significant population movements, fights over land, millions of people leaving places because they're literally sinking below the sea in Indonesia. And so he has been publicly talking about the national security risks uh, tied to climate change and, and what the military should be doing about it to decarbonize its bases and to use clean energy for tactical support. Is there anything new happening under the Biden administration that feels different in its support of these efforts? Yeah, I think the, I mean, I, th I think it's a couple things. I think it's new, you know, because toward the end of the Obama administration, he too released an executive order on 
climate change and national security that establish new mechanisms for coordination uh, across all the security agencies, pushed for uh, more decarbonization from the military, all of that. That executive order was rescinded as soon as President Trump came into office and hadn't been in place very long. But so, I mean, there's a few material differences, I think, from Biden to Obama. I think the issue has become even more acute. He came out from the very beginning of his administration with an executive order on these topics that required a lot from the Defense Department, but also the State Department, USAID. Because let's not forget, this isn't just a DOD security issue. It's it's all arms of, of the national security community. Um, but requiring integration of climate change into wargaming, into regional strategies, I think that to me is one of the biggest and most important things that the Biden administration can do is that focus on mainstreaming or integrating a climate lens. So it's not just off in its its own separate climate office, right? But that everyone throughout the the military sees climate change as part of their job and, and shaping their job. I think the amount of attention in terms of of people and resources that have been focused on this, that you have Secretary Austin saying that his three main issues are China, COVID, and climate. I mean, that's a big deal. And and that sets the tone, you know. When your boss cares about something, <laughs> you care about it a lot. And and Secretary Austin is is the main boss there. So I I, I do think the focus is is even greater uh, than ever before, and and the Biden, I expect when we get the budget request from President Biden later this spring, we will see that focus translated into a request for dollars to focus on these issues as well. Can you give any other examples, concrete examples of how climate change has shaped the way the Pentagon operates or shaped military operations out in the field? Sure. I, you know, I, I've talked a little bit about California and the, and the wildfires there. I think that's a, a key example where you've seen the, the military having to evacuate bases, having to curtail training days due to air quality, having to divert resources to help fight fires. I mean, that's, that's one key example. I think also in places like the Sahel uh, in West Africa, where uh, we've seen climate change uh, drive conflict patterns there, drive uh, the ability of terrorist and extremist groups to recruit more easily as, as governments are not able to help manage the shocks. I think the military's understanding of the nexus between terrorism and extremism and climate change has been shaped by, by the Sahel in particular. I think also in South Asia and Southeast Asia with a number of disasters that have been driven by climate change and an increasing um, intensity of storms and typhoons and the number of uh, times the military has been called on to help respond to those challenges that has also shaped the military's understanding. And then, of course, there's the Arctic as well, uh, which would be remiss not to talk about. But as the ice is melting in the Arctic and opening up new access to either commercial waterways or uh, access to minerals and resources. That's a huge challenge for the U.S. military as Russia seeks to gain access, China, which calls itself a near-Arctic power, uh, and reshaping the geopolitics of that region. That's also been very influential in in the military and its thinking about uh, climate change. So you're dealing with a lot of highly consequential, potentially dire issues in your job. Do you have to get up, take a lot of walks, stretch? 
Yeah, I do. But, but you know, I will say, too, I mean, we focus so much on the risks of, of climate change and national security. But I will say there are opportunities as well by bringing a climate lens to peace building, for example, to preventing conflict, to try and intervene before instability or conflict happens, um, bringing in an understanding of what it means for there to be more extreme weather in a community or a more droughts or less access to water and getting ahead of the problem. I mean, had you told me when I was a, you know, brand new analyst in the intelligence community that we had models that would show us what a foreign leader was going to do 5, 10, 15 years down the road. I mean, I wouldn't believe you, first of all, but if if I did, then I would say, why aren't we using it? And that with climate, I mean, we have models that will show us 5, 10, 15 years down the road at different temperature levels what to expect. And so those predictive capabilities are a huge power that we have and tool for us to use in in the security community. And so that also gives me hope as well, because if we can use those tools, we can get ahead of these problems and uh, work to try and prepare and, and manage them. Aaron Sikorsky is the director at the Center for Climate and Security. And as someone who's worked in intelligence for a decade, she was remarkably good at keeping the conversation mostly jargon-free. If I'm talking to someone from the Pentagon, per se, or, or, or a military paper, I would probably use a few more acronyms and a few more jargony terms. But I tried to avoid them here. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the Carbon Copy is a co-production of PostScript Media and Canary Media. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Daniel Waldorf, Alexandria Herr, and Dalvin Abouage. Ann Bailey is our editor. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our theme. Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Canary Media for their partnership. Go to Canary Media to see all our episodes, subscribe to the Canary Newsletter, and give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this show on whatever podcast app you're on right now. And uh, listen to our companion podcast, Catalyst with Shale Khan, deep dive conversations on how to decarbonize the global economy. Join us here next week. I'm Stephen Lacey. Thanks for being here. This is The Carbon Copy.